What in the name of Sam Hill is that? I'll try you out for a couple of weeks, see if it works out. Oh. If I don't like you, I'll fire you. Right, right. You don't like me? I'll fire you. Yes, yes. I am nobody's master, got it? I don't want you here, and I don't want you here. I'm stuck with you. Other guys who are over there, bad paper or not, have come back and made a life for themselves. It sometimes feels that we do harm to ourselves by taking part in this endeavor. Call Thornton? That's right. I'm Bart Jason. Been expecting you. Get your life in order. But uh, at this point, you're like the meat in your fridge. If you'd ever get here on time, maybe you'd know what was going on. I wouldn't want to be married to her. I mean, again. You are all fired. Who's been going through my fire? You've been looking through my files, haven't you, you little weasel? Seek out the lost little lamb. Society has cruelly abandoned. Now, never about me. Now, what exciting things do you have planned for you and me to do? What do you do on casual Friday? Well, we just uh, come into our work, but we dress casually. I don't like it. That was cool! <laughs> we go together, or we don't go. The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness. Superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie. A Gargoyles Podcast. Hello and welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles Podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, the owner of the website that powers the program, spidey-dude.com. And I am the executive producer of the network that powers the program, the Spidey Dude Radio Network. Before we get started, though, I wanted to thank our patrons at patreon.com slash network. Greg, Jurgen, Vinkman, Scott, Kaylee, and Phoenician. Thank you for your support. And if you want to get the show, this show earlier, check it out there, as well as other fine perks that you'll get whenever you become a Patreon subscriber. There will be some exclusive content that's only for Patreon subscribers coming to you very soon. But before I turn it over to our hosts, I want to encourage you to check out our other fine programs, such as Spidey Dude Experience, ASM Classics, Make Mine Mayday, Bogle Rider Variety Hour, the Salby Sima Era Podcast, Clone Saga Chronicles, and a spectacular radio, a spectacular Spider-Man-related show. Let's start a few familiar names to the program. Please follow the network on Twitter, at Radio and this show, at FromEerie, and feel free to send them feedback at gargoylesvoices at gmail.com. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast catcher, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcasts, Amazon Audible, as well as Google Podcasts. It helps us raise our vis- visibility and like, share, and subscribe for more at Spidey Dude Network, youtube.com slash Spidey Dude Network. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, as I mentioned the Twitter threads, but also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Spidey Dude Network, as well as Instagram, if you like Instagram, instagram.com slash Spidey Dude Network. 
With that out of the way, it's absolutely my pleasure to introduce the hosts of our show, Jennifer L. Anderson and Greg Bashansky. Welcome back, Gargoyles fans, to another episode of Voices from the Eerie. I'm your co-host, Greg Bashansky, and rejoining us as usual is my partner in crime, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello, everyone. And we are again joined by the series co-creator and co-producer of the first two seasons, as well as the writer of the SLG comic books, Gargoyles and Gargoyles Bad Guys, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hello. And we are very pleased to be joined by Mr. Matthew Asner, the son of Ed Asner, the late great Ed Asner, and the head of the Ed Asner Family Center. Hello there. Nice to be here. It's really nice to have you. Truly a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Yeah, we are both huge fans of your father's work, both acting and his activism, and we're looking forward to discussing that. Great. And we, before we jump in, we do, do have a little bit of news to discuss. This is Nightwatch, reporting from New York, Travis Marshall. Tonight, more on the news that has rocked Manhattan, if not the world. NECA Bronx is finally hitting stores. By the time this posts, he and Demona should be available everywhere. Jen, I believe you've got your Demona already? I have her. She looks beautiful. She really does. I've got Bronx. He looks excellent also. I've already put the cloaked wings on Goliath. He still looks great. He takes up a little bit less space that way. I think that's brilliant that they're doing that that, that way with the putting a little extra into the smaller figures. Totally. Diamond Select has also just solicited new busts of Goliath, and then they teased new busts of Xanatos in his armor, as well as Demona. I, I don't have any more room. <laughs> I never thought we'd be getting this much new <laughs> new stuff, This and I just have no more room, so I will enjoy those from afar. I'm kind of in that boat also. We went In less than a year, we went from a famine, a decades-long famine, to a feast. I never thought we would get this much, and I'm kind of being priced out of that, and that's a beautiful thing. I'm not even mad about it. <laughs> right? It's great. I love seeing it happen. I'm afraid we're out of time. This has been Nightwatch. Sleep well. All right, and before we start, we are recording on March 29th, 2022, and today also happens to be the birthday of two people who um, helped bring Demona to life, and she's a big part of this episode. So, Greg Guler, who did the initial character designs, and Marina Sirtis, whose talented voice brought the character to life. Double birthday, how about that? I did not realize they shared a birthday until today. Neither <laughs> did I. All right, and with all of that out of the way, Matt, we would like to uh, formally introduce you to the show, and... Uh, Discuss your father's work and his activism, and we'll start with what is the Ed Asner Family Center for our listeners who may not know. Well, we're um, we're a center. I, it, we're I was the center was founded by my my wife Nava Asner and myself, and um, we um, we are a center um, that uh, offers expressive arts uh, enrichments and uh, mental health services. Uh, to special needs individuals and their families. And uh, what prompted founding this? Well, um, my my we, my wife and I are, are parents to three children on the autism spectrum, um, and uh, we um, 
We founded the center to uh, provide services that we really hoped were there when our kids were really young. So um, we're, we're offering the services that we always wanted. Uh, and it was important for us to to uh, to bring that to the community. Saw a need and, and decided to step up and fill it. Absolutely. And then and then we named it after my father because my father was uh, a, a, a compadre, an autism advocate. Uh, and uh, wanted to add to his legacy by uh, by uh, by doing that. That is awesome. I have a friend who I've known since college. She teaches special needs children in New Jersey. She grew up the older sibling of a younger brother who is special needs, which inspired her to go into that. She hadn't heard of your of the Ed Asner Family Center until I brought it up with her, but she's definitely been doing her research on it. She's very interested, and she did tell me she's glad you guys are out there doing what you're doing and that it's also for the whole family not just for children because a lot of times special needs adults seem to get lost along the way it's for the entire family and uh and it's it's uh you know we've been in operation now for uh, i think uh just going on four or five years now and uh and it's been it's been very special the 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 pandemic definitely dealt us a hand uh, but we uh, we took everything and, and made it virtual for a couple of years, uh, and are just now getting back to in person uh, in person uh, uh, events. So we're we're really excited because we just started a, co- a bunch of programs here at the center, and uh, things are things are definitely hopping up. Beautiful. That is terrific to hear, and I plan to someday make my own contribution. <laughs> Thank you very much. I will also post the URL on social media and on the page for this particular episode so that our listeners, if they are so inclined, can do the same thing. Wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have to say, growing up, your father was a legend before I was born. I've long been impressed by his acting, his activism. He's an amazing actor, an amazing man, and very principled. I mean, I've done, I've read so much about him. Even if you didn't dis, if you didn't agree with him, you always respected him because he was firm about where he stood. He practiced what he preached. He, he talked the talk and walked the walk. Well, it's interesting you mention that because I one of my vivid memories um, of uh, being with him, uh, kind of making the rounds with him during one of his trips to New York, was, uh, was he did the Bill O'Reilly show when when that was a thing, and uh, I'm not a big fan of him, uh, his, and and I don't think my father was, but but he did the show and uh, and and during that show, Bill O'Reilly really said said to him that he was. Uh, he was one of the people that he looked up to most because it didn't matter what side of the fence you are. He was always stuck to his convictions and and was always um, you knew exactly where Ed Asner was going to be and and what he was going to be doing. And that's that's very true about my father. He he was like that. That is awesome. And he was just perfect as Hudson, perfect in so many roles. And Greg, I know we went we've talked about this a little bit before, but um, I think it's appropriate now to talk about the development of Hudson, how he went from Ralph to Hudson, what Ed Asner brought to the role when he was cast. I have a question for Greg. Sir? So, Greg, was was he always, um, was he always Scottish? <laughs> uh, that's a fair question. So, uh, we didn't know what the answer to that was going to be before we started holding auditions. Um, 
which I know sounds odd, but uh, we just had, we, we weren't sure what a gargoyle should sound like. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't find any living models to, uh, to uh, sample. <laughs> but um, when I wrote up the character description for Hudson, um, the last line, you know, it was just a page to describe the character. And the last line of the page was Hudson hates spunk. <laughs> um, which obviously Matt laughs at because he gets it. Um, but it's, uh, it was our, a sign. It was a sign. Right. So I had, I had modeled Hudson on Lou Grant, huh. which I know sounds weird, but cause it was a, he was a, 10th century gargoyle, but in my head, that was what I wanted out of it. But it never occurred to me in a million years that we could get at, um, that seemed, you know, beyond our reach. And then lo and behold, he came in to audition for the part. Um, and I was, uh, and I had not met Ed up to that point and I was beyond excited about that. And, um, and he later told me, uh, that when he read that, the Hudson hates spunk line, he's like, oh, this is great. This role was written for me, literally. Um, <laughs> and then he said he had a second moment right after that, which was that if I don't get this, I'm going to be really pissed off. <laughs> uh, and, uh, so he read it and of course he was wonderful. And then. We sort of, uh, Jamie Thomason was the voice director on it, and myself, uh, we sort of threw him this curveball and said, can you do it in a Scottish accent? And there was this pause, and he said, sure. And then he just did it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we just decided the, the show was set in New York, but uh, the gargoyles in theory were from Scotland, and no one else, none of the other gargoyles had a Scottish accent. But we thought it would be great if the eldest gargoyle sort of uh, carried that Scottish feel forward for us. And your dad just did the job. Uh, and, you know, he was Hudson. It was amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, we became friends from there. And it was uh, just a, a wonderful experience for me. Uh, I hope it was for him. I know it was. He 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 spoke about it a lot, and you know he went to a lot of conventions and 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 stuff like that. And um, uh, he was always uh, meeting people who were fans of the show, and um, just loved that they would come up and talk to him and 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 talk to him about the show. So he he loved it. He loved it. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> I mean, I thought so, but I you know it's great to hear it confirmed. Um, I, you know, one thing that we do with a lot of the actors who come on the program is we ask them uh, how they became actors, how they became part of the business. And um, so I, I kind of want to know, uh, I assume you know the, at least the basics of it. How did your dad become an actor? Um, well, it's interesting. I, 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 once, I once asked him, you know, Dad, if, if you hadn't been an actor, what would you what would you be doing? And he paused for a moment and thought about it. And then he just said, the alternative is too horrible to even think about. <laughs> so, 
So I, I really believe that uh, that his only choice in life was to be an actor. He, you know, he bounced around from job to job. He was in college for a while. Uh, he had acted in high school and really, I think, came out of his shell by acting in high school. Um, so he went from being, you know, the um, the overweight kid in the corner to this kind of um, actor, thespian. And uh, and I think it meant something to him. And, and he saw that he could uh, he could um, express himself in a way that he couldn't uh, in other in other uh, situations. So I think it was great for him to get him out of his shell. Um, after high school, he, he went to um, he went to the University of Chicago uh, in, in Chicago. And, and um, uh, while he was there, hooked up with. Um, Paul Sills, who uh, started, uh, and they started playwrights together, um, and uh, and then um, my dad went to the army, uh, and while he was in the army, he wrote and uh, performed, um, and so that's really the origins of his performing. Uh, he, um, you know, he really felt connected to the world when he performed, and he was able to express himself easily in society when he performed. And so that's why I'm sure he gravitated towards acting. That's great. I mean, one of the reasons that this is so off topic, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons that I so connected with your dad, both as Lou Grant and then later as a human being, is because he so reminded me of my dad. Yeah. They're both Ashkenazi Jews from the Midwest who played football and uh, not that my dad's an actor, he's not at all, but, uh, you know, just a similar sort of sense of humor. My dad was in the Army, too, briefly, and uh, um, and it just, uh, there was always that sense uh, of the two of them, uh, though they never met, having this sort of feel in common. That is anyway. That is a very common statement uh, from from many people. And um, if there's one thing, if there's one thing that I I, I can say that um, that I had to do with my dad in life is I had to share him, because uh, a lot of people uh, can considered him his their grandpa or their father, uh, and I and I under, I understood that immediately uh, when I was very young. From when I was very young, I understood that. And um, he he loved it. He loved being that father figure. He loved being the person that people you know would call if they needed to. He, he enjoyed connecting with people. He loved connecting with people. Yeah, he was uh, just a joy for me to be with every time. Uh, I have to say. Um, and I know anyway, he- I kind of. Uh, I kind of Shanghai the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely welcome to do so. Uh, Ed deserves the time. <laughs> but no, he was a fantastic actor, whether he was playing a fatherly or grandfatherly figure. It made, he made you feel warm and safe. And when he played a bad guy, he was scary. <laughs> well, he, he was convincing for sure. Uh, and uh, he, he could always sum up uh, the depths of evil from him somewhere. 
there was somewhere in him. I don't know where it was. I didn't see the evil ever, but uh, for him to be able to sum that up, I think he he had it in there somewhere. There was a darkness in him somewhere. Um, but he he enjoyed playing bad guys. I know for the first, you know, for the first ten years he did, uh, he worked in television and movies. He predominantly played bad guys. So, and then he went, you know, then he got well known, and and it was is a different different bag of uh, uh, bag of gold. So um, he he uh, he enjoyed when he when he went into the world of, of projects like Gargoyles because, um, you know, he, he could play uh, wild characters. Uh, you know, uh, Hudson certainly wasn't a, a bad guy. <laughs> he was not a bad guy at all. But, um, but he did play bad guys in, uh, in other uh, animated projects like uh, Granny Goodness and other characters like that. So, um, so he had fun. He had a lot of fun doing voiceovers. He enjoyed it so much. He he really thrived on that. He had an amazing voice for it, and uh, especially like in the episode we're about to to discuss as well. Um, we were talking about how the, everybody's voice acting, and it was just absolutely amazing. And you really got to see it focused focuses mostly on on Hudson and uh, and flashbacks and to to his past, but how uh he goes from like this confident i'm the leader to i'm not so confident in myself anymore and like you just feel it in his voice and he's just so good yeah yeah he 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 was uh he, he was a master at at uh at the the, the um at subtlety i think yeah. wouldn't you say that great absolutely yeah i mean just uh all these little moments throughout the uh yeah like today's episode uh yeah. indeed it you know we felt like uh we needed uh, uh frank parr my partner and uh michael reeves the story editor and Bryn chandler reeves who wrote the episode we felt we needed an episode that sort of explained for the audience a few things that the pilot backstory hadn't um had room to articulate <laughs> one of those things was transition to power from Hudson to Goliath. How had that taken place? So this episode allowed us to, to parallel a lot of events. Um, I, I, uh, I, I haven't seen an episode of Gargoyles for a very long time, so it was great to watch this episode because it was, it was, uh, you know, it was kind of a, a trip back to, to uh, when it was on. Um, and it's great to see them on Disney plus. Um, I, um, I forgot. I think it, it, Goliath is played by Keith David, right? Yes. Yeah, he's got such right. such a great, great, great voice. He really does. Very distinctive, wonderful voice. He's got one of those voices that gives you chills. You know, like it's yeah. the gravitas of it. He does. He does. Uh, and they and they. And, and, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say they work so well together. W- w- did they record together, or were they? Were they separate? They, uh, season one, we always recorded everybody together. Uh, every once in a while, someone would not be available for the normal record day and we'd pick them up later. But I don't think that was the case in season one. In season, during season two, or at least a big chunk of it, Keith was, uh, in the play seven guitars on Broadway and we had to pick him up, 
via what we called a phone patch in those days, uh, long distance. Yeah. Um, and he wouldn't record with the cast. But this episode that we're talking about, Long Way to Morning, um, was a season one episode. And I'm fairly certain, though, God knows it's been a lot of years, um, that everybody recorded that one together. And when you look at the cast for this episode, it's kind of insane. I mean, it, it really comes down <laughs> to being a three-character play, Demona, Goliath, and Hudson with uh, Keith, Ed, and Marina Sirtis. But we also had Roger Reese and um, David Warner mm. in there. Um, two of the, you know, you know, each of their time, like the Hamlet of their generation. In England, <laughs> you know? yeah. um, and uh, just this phenomenal group of performers there was also you know jeff bennett was in there playing a little bit of brooklyn and a little broadway from bill fagerbaki and uh, andy uh mcafee yeah, that would have been interesting i think yeah and andy mcafee uh playing young princess catherine uh having to do a young version of the character of the cast who she had played in the pilot um and it was just this sort of amazing confluence of of performers. Uh, and again, credit to Jamie Thomason for directing them, uh, but just really an amazing group of talent uh, in the room. Uh, and yeah, they played that all together. Uh, well, you could tell because there's an energy yeah. to it that, that, you know, I, you don't usually find uh, in, in animated uh, shows. And, and I, I thought it was wonderful. Yeah. It, it was a, you know, a huge blessing to us. And, um, so we at AMM, we wanted to show the transition of power from Hudson to Goliath in the past, but we also wanted uh, we had done episodes earlier in the season that were sort of a Lexington episode and a Brooklyn episode and a Broadway episode. So we wanted to do a Hudson episode. He was the character that we felt at this point had probably had the least amount of focus up till now, and we felt it was time to um, give him that attention. And uh, as with the others in particular, with give attention to his relationship to Goliath uh, and show how loyal Goliath was to him in the past, even when young Demona wasn't. Um, and uh, we also kind of wanted to give a little bit of explanation to uh, why was Princess Catherine so anti-gargoyle? Um, and so we sort of showed that her father kind of irresponsibly used gargoyles as sort of boogeyman to keep her in behaving. Um, and then when he was injured, she didn't see the poisoning. And so she just took it for granted, given what her father always said to her, that um, Hudson was responsible for it, that the gargoyles were the bad guys here. And, um, and she never really gets disabused of this notion until, um, years and years later and that comes out of uh that was at least a way to give her a little more depth um after the fact to sort of explain how it is that she became the way she was when we first meet her you know at the beginning of the series i think it was a good lesson in in how casual bigotry um can fester you know like you need to uh, it's just, you know, even if it's just a, a small comment here and there, something, uh, 
sometimes it catches and it just festers, and then you have, you know, her hating gargoyles all her life. Yeah, well, what's brilliant about that was you don't see that too often. Usually when you see bigotry being displayed as a cautionary tale, it's very overt bigotry, whereas here, I don't think Prince Malcolm is a flaming bigot at all. I think he likes Hudson. I think he likes the gargoyles. He's just being irresponsible and brushing it off. Oh, you're too sensitive. Today we would call those microaggressions. You know, I mean, we didn't have yeah, that term yeah, back exactly. then, but it's not like we didn't know they existed. And that was a, literally what we were trying to display is that, um, yeah, Malcolm wasn't a rampant bigot. In fact, from his point of view, he probably thought he was open-minded. But he had all these little microaggressions that he, you know, thrust Hudson's way, and he never took the time to spell things out for his daughter. Uh, even the pragmatic stuff, like, hey, we need them. They need us. It's good. You know, he never did that. And that, in effect, leads to the tragedy of the pilot um, to a great degree. Yeah. Um, Gargoyles will return. Hi, everyone. And this is Ed Asner, otherwise known, hopefully, to you as Hudson. <laughs> I, uh, I want to commend you on uh, choosing this series. I thought it was a wonderful, wonderful series. I love watching it, and uh, I'm delighted that uh, you're fans of it. Uh, I had a great deal of enjoyment working with it. It's uh, writer-producer Greg Wiseman and Jenny Thompson. It's uh, director. We all work very well together. And it, it was always exciting to be there. I, uh, I of course, resented the fact that I, I had to be the old geezer. <laughs> uh, plus the fact that uh, with the quality of the actors working on the show, I always felt very threatened because they were all so good, <laughs> excellent actors. And I think they did a marvelous job and matched the animation perfectly. I, uh, I found the story very exciting and uh, interesting, dark, but, uh, well, you know, if you're doing a story about dark, well, it has to be dark. <laughs> we do our best work there, in case you didn't know. And of course, so do vampires, but, uh, that's what we weren't. <laughs> I wanted the show to be, to be with, and, and uh, I only regret it didn't have a uh, longer lifespan. I thought it merited continuation. That's great. And I'm delighted to see that you're maintaining that continuation by your participation in this, uh, what is it, the eighth or the tenth get-together? Eighth get-together. And uh, I love signing the cards that come in which uh, I'm glad to memorialize the series. And I hope to meet you at some future gathering. Montreal is a little far away right now because I'm about to begin a new series. Uh, but uh, you've got to thank your stars for one thing. It's got to be cooler there than it is in L.A. right now. <laughs> so I've had a marvelous time. I'm, I regret not being with you, and I hope to be with you in the future. And... Uh, I'll try to do better work next time. <laughs> I would hope that uh, 
somebody comes back and repraises my Hatsu. Take care and the best of luck. Uh, so let's backtrack a little bit. Um, how did Hudson go from Ralph to Hudson? From the comedy oh, version yeah. to the serious version. M- much better name, by the way. <laughs> Ralph. <laughs> so in, in our original development of the show, this was a comedy, a comedy adventure show. The basic storyline, I don't know if Matt knows this, the basic storyline was basically unchanged. It was a bunch of cute little gargoyles who had a spell cast them in medieval times and woke up in modern day New York. Um, but instead of there being uh, these sort of warriors, they were more like mischievous little, more gremlins than gargoyles, I'm going to say. I mean, they were gargoyles, but um, they just felt like, you know, little mischievous guys and we would have fun little comedy adventures with them. That was the original development that um, Michael Eisner I did not approve, which is why we didn't make that version of the show. Um, and one of the characters was a guy named Ralph, who um, was basically a couch potato. That <laughs> he arrived in the 20th century and uh, and discovered Barker loungers and television sets. And he would be like, uh, yeah, you guys go. I'll watch the castle. I'll take care of things here. But really, you just wanted to sit around and watch TV. And that was sort of the running gag with him. And he wasn't well-developed. I'm not going to pretend he was. Although, of course, we would have done more with him if we'd made that show. But we didn't make that show. Um, and there was a version of almost every character, including Demona, Xanatos, and, Goli- and uh, not Goliath, sorry, uh, all the other gargoyles, but uh, not Goliath. There wasn't a version of Goliath in the original development. And when the comedy version got uh, vetoed by Michael, um, my immediate boss, Gary Kreisel, sort of sent me back to the drawing board. And one of the things I did was, uh, which I think we've discussed here before, but um, is I consulted with various people, including Tad Stones, who had uh, created shows like Darkwing Duck and Chippendale's Rescue Rangers and Tad had uh, um, seen an early version of, of Beauty and the Beast. So uh, I hadn't seen it yet. It wasn't out yet. Uh, but Tad had seen it, and he suggested that um, instead of doing all these little funny gargoyles, what if we did one big gargoyle um, with, uh, who was more heroic? Because we already had the female Elisa character, um, and he's like, do a more Beauty and the Beast thing. And that really clicked for me. My background wasn't in funny cartoons. Actually, my background was in comic books and superheroes at the mm-hmm. time. Um, not that that's changed that much. But uh, so uh, an artist named Greg Guler and I uh, created Goliath. Um, and we took the entire comedy development of the show and put it through the prism of Goliath and out the other end came the version of the show that we all know and love. And what that meant is Ralph went through that and came out the other end as Hudson, um, named after the river, and he became the sort of veteran gargoyle warrior. And you can still see hints of Ralph there, 
particularly in the early episodes when Goliath is always telling him to stay and guard the castle um, while the rest of them go out and do stuff and, and episodes where you do see him in a recliner watching television. Um, but so uh, You kept some of that. We did. We kept some of it. Uh, but it became just a tiny piece of it, as opposed to the raisin detra of the entire character. It just became, yeah, you know, he's older. He doesn't mind, you know, taking it easy every once in a while, but he's still a warrior. I mean, one of the great moments for me in this show is, you know, he's been full of self-doubt. Hudson has been full of self-doubt through the whole episode. And Goliath is like, you know, at the very end of it, after it's all more or less worked out, um, is sort of like, uh, thanking him and, and, you know, feeling, you know, sort of reminding him how much Goliath counts on him even now. And, uh, Hudson says, I thought my warrior days were over. And Goliath is like, no, you don't worry, man. You've got years of fighting left, which of course is a mixed blessing. <laughs> it's not a curse, um, to be handing to this guy. And I just love Ed's reading of, you know, that final line, um, Oh, great. Now there's something to look forward to, you know, or (laughs) I didn't write down the exact words, but, uh, it's something like that. You know, there's on the one hand, this adventure has sort of proven to him that he isn't past his prime, that he can still do what needs to be done. He can still get the job done, et cetera. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean he wants to be fighting all the time. Who the hell would want that? And (laughs) he just wants to retire in his lazy boy, man. (laughs) Wants to be in the Barker Lounge. Uh, Ed, Ed gets both of those ideas into that line, which is what I love. You know, just that this inherent contradiction uh, that on the one hand, he's glad that he can still do it when he needs to. But on the other hand, he's not looking forward to the idea that he's going to need to do this all the time. I, I have a question because I'm not knowledgeable in this world. Um how, what is the, what is the, what, I mean, are they immortal? Do, do, are they, are the gargoyles immortal? Do they, do they have a lifespan? No. Yeah, uh, we figured that if, uh, uh, because gargoyles sleep during the day as stone, they don't age during the day. So it's about twice the lifespan of, of a human. So if the top end, I mean, my mom, oh, not my mom, geez, my grandmother lived to 102. Uh, so did mine. So, see, another thing we've got in common. That's right. Matt and I are uh, brothers from different <laughs> mothers and fathers and everything. But, uh, uh, but uh, you know, if you look at 100, more or less is the upper end of the human lifespan. Then we look at 200 as the upper end of the gargoyle lifespan and that they age at about half the rate of humans. So. You know, the Hudson that you're seeing here, even if you don't count the thousand year gap, right. is probably about a hundred. Uh, I mean, I've got an actual timeline where I could, not in front of me, or I could say exactly how old Hudson was in this episode. I just checked probably Gar- about. Yeah, I just checked Gargwicky. He's about the equivalent of a 59 year old at this point. Oh, wow. Right. So uh, that's amazing. And since I'm turning 59 this year. So, uh, I feel so old. <laughs> and, uh, Greg, so am I. Are, are you really? I am. Are we literally? What's your birthday? 
Um, we were twins. My, uh, my birthday is September 9th. Uh, you're older. You're so much older. My birthday is September 28th. Oh, there we go. <laughs> oh, but you know what? That's my son's birthday. September 28th. Wow. Just checking off uh, the boxes here, man. Yeah. <laughs> now, now People are learning a lot about us, uh, Greg. <laughs> I, I now I've completely lost my train of thought. Like, What's the next question, Greg? All right. I'm, I'm switching gears a little bit, I bit. Um, Demona makes this attack on Elisa, an attack she believes is successful, and... Um, I love that debate they're all having because some would say that Goliath is still being very wishy-washy about what to do with this dangerous lunatic. I, I think he's just being idealistic. Like he, some some part of him still thinks that she can be redeemed at this point. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like he right. he doesn't want he won't kill her. He doesn't want Brooklyn anywhere near her. <laughs> but he's he's confused, uh, still confused with his feelings. Of this was someone he loved once, um, and to what she's turned into today, and he's having—he's still being dreamy about perhaps getting her back. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we wanted to illustrate that a bit. So one of the purposes of the flashbacks was to show Demona at that younger age when she is still Demona. She's got her opinions, but she's fundamentally loyal. I mean, there, she has a great line, which Marina reads well as the young Demona, where it's like, I don't know which of us is more nuts, him for leading, you for following, or me for not leaving you both, you know, kind of thing. She's already got a bit of that attitude that's going to lead her to become the person we see in the present. If the present is 1994. Um, but... Back in 984, you can still see that, you know, and, and that's the Demona Goliath wants to remember. Yes, she had attitude, but she was fundamentally loyal. She was good to him, and, and you know, she'd never betray Hudson. She might think that Hudson needed to step down, and Hudson ultimately agreed with her. Um, and one of the tricks we had from a storyboarding standpoint was to show all these flashbacks were from Hudson's point of view, so... We wanted to make sure that when Demona is sort of whispering in Goliath's ear, that we're showing that she thinks she's being quiet and that Hudson isn't hearing her. But we wanted to always indicate that Hudson knew that he was either coming up the hallway or you, he'd be down, uh, you know, studying the tracks in the ground, and sh- and she and Goliath would be further back. But you know, you see his, you'd be close on him, and you'd see his eye move to indicate that. You know, he's listening. Um, and that's surprisingly hard to do, particularly when your primary storyboard artists are in Japan and you're in Burbank. Um, uh, but, you know, we got all that in there. And the idea is, is that in the old days, you know, in the medieval days, you know, if a gargoyle was a criminal, in essence, the punishment was banishment because the clan all lived in one area. And so that was a tremendous punishment to send the gargoyle out into the wilderness alone because clan was everything, right? Um, well, he can't enforce a banishment in Manhattan. I mean, hell, she's not living with them anyway. So banishment is not, you know, the old solution doesn't work at all. Um, 
And it's like you said, Jen, he's got no intention of killing her. He's, he's not going to do that. There's so few gargoyles left in the world, A, and B, he still, there's a part of him that still loves her, crazy as she's sort of become, or maybe murderous is a better word. Um, and what are they going to do, just lock her up in the clock tower forever? Um, that just doesn't seem like a viable solution either. So it's still early enough in the season, I guess, that he thinks maybe, just maybe, there's a chance that he can reason with her. And he's wrong. <laughs> but it was worth trying. It's very, very idealistic at first. And he's like that when she keeps talking about he, um, he should be the leader and Hudson should step down. And Goliath's being idealistic there, too. Like, he he sees this, this is how it, it's always been, this is how it should be. And he doesn't want to recognize that things need to change. Right. Exactly right. Yeah. This episode did not go to one of the A-list animation studios, and yet there's still a mood to the piece that is really well done. I th- well done. It's just uh, it's a very moody episode, and Whoever boarded some of these sequences, my hat's off to them, especially that entire sequence in the cemetery. But I'm also looking at the present day and the modern day, and you can see the parallels between the two versions of Demona. This is a much more violent version of that, where there she's urging Goliath to step up, not necessarily, not violently do anything, but, you know, talk Hudson is stepping down so that he can lead. And here she is violently trying to remove Goliath so that she can lead. Uh, yeah, I mean, all those parallels between the, the two time periods, those, of course, were very intentional. And we worked, and Michael and Bryn and I worked those out um, in a lot of detail. I mean, as you guys can probably tell by now, this is a show where we were very detail-oriented. And some of our choices wound up just being serendipitous, I suppose. Things like, I don't know, last episode, you know, the Emir. Michael writes a line about the Emir, and then later we make a whole episode about the Emir. Um, but a lot of it was very thought out, and certainly the parallels in this episode were very um, conscious. Uh, so her... Uh, um, trying to affect a change in leadership in both everything from uh, our wings will be useless underground, which is something that goes on in both sequences. Um, You know, all those little things, those parallels were intentional um, to the point where at some point I'm going, are we uh, overdoing it? (laughs) (laughs) and ultimately, I don't think it was, but uh, every once in a while you get this moment where you're going, are we too heavy-handed with this now? Um, but I think it basically is working pretty well. Um, and uh, But it, yeah, those were all very thought out and planned. Now, you had um, David Warner come in as the Archmage. Right. And at, like at that point, just a little part for a great voice like David Warner... Did you know then that you would have him back later? So was that a serendipitous thing, thing? That's one of the serendipitous things, I suppose, uh, in the sense that um, he was just so good. I mean, it's a little tiny part, and it's kind of a cliche-ridden part. Um, 
the evil sorcerer, right? Um, but she was so good. He was great. And, you know, uh, yeah, and us getting him or and Roger, any of the actors we got, that was just, a lot of that was just Jamie, you know, being so good. I mean, Jamie's our voice director, but one of the things that he, he's also the casting director. And we don't talk about that much because, you know, you focus on the performance. But casting is an art in and of itself, an incredibly important aspect of it. And we've talked a lot about the leads and who had to audition because the suits upstairs, they always want to hear, they always want to make the final decision on the leads, like Hudson, Goliath, Demona, et cetera. But then they don't pay attention after that. Mm-hmm. You know, no one is sitting there going, uh, who's playing your guest star this week? And because of the nature of production, we don't have time to hold auditions for that. So Jamie's just casting, and he's doing that talking to Frank and I. So it's not without input, but um, but he's just got to sort of do it. So he brings in David Warner for this tiny little role, and I'm sitting in the control room with Jamie, and I'm going, okay, we've got to have this guy back. <laughs> we've got to do something with the Archmage. And Jamie's like, well, but you just killed him off. I'm like, I'll figure something out. <laughs> and so we, <laughs> we figured does, out. Does anyone ever really die? Yeah, we figured out a way to uh, bring him back because uh, David was just so good. And Roger, of course, comes back too. Um, uh, winds up playing a couple little things for us here and there. But uh, but yeah, we built an entire triptych of episodes around David Warner's character. One of them, he spends the whole episode talking to himself. Um, <laughs> and uh, I can't wait to talk about that one. <laughs> did David yeah, live in the States? At that time, he did. He lived in Los Angeles. Um, I guess he was probably doing a lot of movies and television. I know he was on a couple episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation since uh, that was being produced at that time, and we had half the cast in our cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well um so yeah he was in the states then roger reese i think was doing cheers um then man my date's slightly confused robin Colcord. Uh, because i am almost 59 um <laughs> yeah robin Colcord. that's right he played robin Colcord on cheers and uh they, again they were uh they were great but david just you know managed to take this tiny little caricature of a part and turn it into something so interesting in such a short period of time. I mean, the Archmage has so little, first off, the flashbacks, you know, are very memorable, but they've got very, they're actually comprised very little screen time. And then the Archmage isn't in most of it. So he had even less time to make an impression. And yet he makes an incredible impression in, in these handful of scenes that he's got. Um, shouting spells and really bad Latin. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, it, it winds up being uh, something that I'm like, I couldn't resist. I'm like, okay, we've got to have this guy back. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, uh, Greg and Jennifer know this. I, you know, I have a tendency to fall in love with actors and bring them back over and over again. Uh, you know, Ed, uh, after 
Gargoyles, he was in Witch. He uh, had a character who was this little kitten who magically uh, is able to talk, and I thought, well, that's got to be Ed um, <laughs> to play this kitten. Hmm. Um, and then uh, when I did Spectacular Spider-Man, you know, and I needed an Uncle Ben, I'm like, well, that's clearly going to be Ed. Um, no one else could be Uncle Ben for me except Ed. <laughs> Um, you know that was his brother Ben was uh, Ed's brother yeah his older brother yeah so I I, that was my uncle Ben (laughs) (laughs) I'm loving this I really am loving all this (laughs) well my son's name is Ben oh there we see there we go yeah Um, and my wife had an uncle Ben uh huh my, my son's not Ben he's Ben so he played uh, he played uh, two characters in in Spider Man, didn't he? For a different Spider Man show, he was Jay Jonah. Okay, yes, yeah, the nineties show. show. And yeah, he was yeah, great at and yeah, he was great at that also. These two father figures to Peter Parker, albeit from very different ends of the spectrum. He did that well. I had to throw that in, in there because we are hosted by SpideyDude.com. dot com. It's a Spider Man fan site, so I had to bring that in. There you go. Um, but yeah, he played Eddie Marshak for me on uh, Max Steel, uh, and uh, he was uh, Kent Nelson on uh, Young Justice, and in Reign of the Ghosts, he was uh, uh, the old ferryman who tells the kids the story of, of the World War II bomber. Um, and so, you know, I, I just... Loved working with him uh, and always got gold from Ed and uh, and so, you know, used him over and over again, as I do with most of the actors that I fall in love with on whatever show I fall in love with. And then I try to bring him back like it was a rep company. <laughs> the, the Weissman Rep Company. Yeah. There we go. Uh, that's the trademark name, but you know, yes. <laughs> let's talk about that sequence in the cemetery because that, even though it's not Walt Disney Television Japan, I still we were watching the sequence earlier. It's still gorgeous. It's still very suspenseful. The effects of the rain, and I understand rain is difficult in animation. The lightning, things like Demona popping up behind an angel's statue or Hudson slicing his sword through another statue. Yeah, that angel story, angel statue is great. You see it as we enter and then you see it again and lightning flashes and you, and you realize Demona was behind it and the angel's wings were hiding her wings. And then later, yeah, uh, Hudson slashes it with his sword, which is pretty impressive, actually. <laughs> I'm not sure if you... His sword, sword is... Pretty badass. Badass and, it's a, and it's a clean cut. Yeah, really clean. <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> it's nice. Um, uh, that's uh, some pretty uh, impressive swordsmanship there, and a pretty impressive sword. It can reflect. I, I have this moment where I'm like, you know, where we missed a bet, probably was just too long ago, but, um, you know, she's got this big particle beam weapon, this laser cannon, right? And uh, he's got this sword, and I'm like, she should have said, you brought a sword to a laser cannon fight? Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
we missed that opportunity. Um, but then, you know, the sword reflects the beam back at her. That's <laughs> great. And then later he uses it as a, in essence, as a mirror to, to see where she is. Um, and it's like, well, that is one useful damn sword. Um, it's made of and, vibranium. Uh, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and he stole it from a Viking. So that Viking had a great sword. But yeah, that sequence in, it, it is terrific, you know. And again, there there's some challenges there. You want to, you have that moment where Hudson has put Goliath in the crypt, right? And Goliath is more or less unconscious in that crypt and very vulnerable. And Hudson is fighting Demona, and then the lightning flashes. And when the lightning flashes, you can see Goliath clear as day in the crypt, right? But fortunately, Demona just has her back to the crypt at that moment. So Hudson has to make sure that as he's fighting, that he's not only, you know, holding his own against her, but that he's keeping her attention focused away from the door of the crypt. And then the only recourse he has ultimately is, let me get her on top of the crypt so that she can't see uh, in. So he leaps up there and she follows him. And, of course, Demona being her own worst enemy nine times out of ten, you wind up with, uh, you know, this, this moment where she could just shoot him. She's so pissed off that she wants to beat him to death with the butt of the <laughs> weapon. <laughs> so she just starts swinging it at him um, because she just worked up such irrational anger by that point. He's just, you know, because she was so in control at the beginning. But by the end, she's just whacking at him um, in fury. Uh, and I think we pretty much pulled that off. I, you know, I always was nervous that it would feel like silly. Um, why isn't she just shooting him? You know, kind of moment. But um, I feel like we build her anger. And Marina did a great job at building her anger through it. But by the end, you believe that she's just gone bonkers at this point. So she's just swinging that thing at him because she just wants to beat him to death. Um, which is, you know, great for a kid's cartoon that's funny. <laughs> um, well, I, I like how, how, like, Hudson's like, well, the thing that comes with age is he's learned patience. He's learned to wait. Right. And she's just youthful and impulse, impulsive still. And, the, you know, this is before we find out that she's immortal and she's been awake for over a thousand years and she really should know better by now. Right. Yeah, it's about her fundamental. This episode isn't, but uh, the series as a whole. One of the big questions is, is, is does Demona have the fundamental ability to change at all? Um. You know, she's gradually gotten worse and worse. Is there any uh, path out for her? Um, and I think the answer is going to be down the road when we meet Angela, her daughter. Uh, the answer is going to be maybe. Mm -hmm. um, but at this stage, the answer is clearly no. You know, Goliath's hope that he could talk some sense into her isn't dashed by the fact that she shot him. It's dashed by the revelation at the end that she shot Elisa with a poison to which there is no antidote. You know, in the flashback, there's all this thing. We've got to get the Grimorum back 
because the antidote's in there. There's an antidote. So you believe through most of this episode, if you're seeing it for the first time, that there's an antidote for that poison for Elisa. Now, thankfully, we don't need it because the badge luckily blocked the dart that Demona shot at Elisa. Realization at the end is that that was a slow-acting poison designed to lure Goliath into a trap, but ultimately to kill Elisa no matter what Goliath chose to do. And that's the moment where you feel like she's irredeemable. Um, again, it's not because she shot Goliath. It's not because she beat up or tried to beat up Hudson or that she stalked them for an entire episode. That's just fighting, you know? Uh, the reason for me that makes her sort of irredeemable in this episode is the uh, revelation that she poisoned her with something for which there was no antidote. And, you know, they're able, fortunately, to write it off like, hey, it's okay. Uh, let's just let her think Elisa's dead for the time being. That's probably better. I think it's easy to sort of slide past that revelation. Um, and you shouldn't, because I think that's the significant moment about Demona's current state, as opposed to the person she was in the 10th century. Mm -hmm. No, no I, I, I agree with everything you've you said, and of course, um, you are right. That moment where she says there was no antidote—that is a moment that kind of easily slides. And in my uh, nearly thirty years watching the show, I never quite focused on that the way you've described it. And you're right; it's there. Damn, I learn something new about the show every day. And <laughs> well, and the and that ties in with with the flashback. Like Goliath has been through this. Like we need to get the antidote to, for the poison thing. So it's the perfect lure for Goliath to pull him in. But in the end, she's just going to kill Lisa anyway. Chilling, or it's meant to be chilling. I hope it's chilling. Well, well it yeah. is. I mean, her, her, her hatred for this woman. Somebody's jealous. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Hudson, like you said, he does outsmart her, despite her saying, I'm stronger, smarter, and younger than you. Your pride. She he defeats her and he doesn't even need to be physically tougher than her to do it. I love it. Yeah, he he outsmarted her through his his patience. Like he uh, everything he did was tactical, like his, his strategy to keep her from seeing where he was, to you know how to get away from her, to see you know using the sword. Everything was he's uh, he just outdid her. The tortoise and the hare. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. We also wanted to use the flashback to sort of show that Hudson has a skill that we had sort of touched on in the pilot, but I wanted to reinforce it, which is that Hudson has this sort of amazing tracking ability, um, which is a skill that Goliath doesn't have. Um, Goliath's great at a lot of things, and obviously he's a big guy and powerful, but um, Hudson... Um, has this one skill, which is this ability to track and is even able to use it a little bit in the modern world. We see it when they first land on the old York Opera House. I know you're from New York, uh, uh, Greg. You've been to the old York, old York Opera House very often? 
Oh yeah, all the time. <laughs> it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> but I do like uh, to spend time down in the village, Greenwich Village. It's a lot of fun down there. Right. Some great restaurants. <laughs> I'd forgotten that till last night. The old York Opera House down in the village. I'm like, where in the village could this even pretend to be? <laughs> the old York Opera House. It was clearly close to one of the rivers, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> like, I have no idea where that's supposed to be, even vaguely. But, uh, but yeah, you know, when they first land on the rooftop there, he can tell, um, you know, that she's been there already, you know, that kind of thing. Um, he, you know, we wanted to show both in the past and the present that that was a skill set of his that, uh, Goliath didn't have. Um, and which Hudson takes for granted. It's just something he can do and he doesn't necessarily value it, you know, the way Goliath does. So we just wanted to slide that in there in a two or three moments in the episode to reinforce that idea. Nice. Are there any uh, final thoughts on this episode? Is there anything we've missed? Matt? <laughs> no, I thought it was great. I, I, I enjoyed it immensely. It was, uh, uh, and I think uh, Greg Greg's right, it was very artistically beautiful. Um, it was very gothic and, and wonderful. If you're ever in the mood, there's another episode that really focuses on Hudson. Your father turns in a great performance in season two called "The Price," one of the series' best, I think. Which which uh, which season? The second season. I will check it out. There are a couple little things I wanted to point out. Um, just because when else do I have this opportunity? Um, we also get to see the origin of Hudson uh, getting blinded in one eye. Um. And then there's just this little moment that I love where Hudson drapes his wings over Goliath like a blanket. You know, wraps the injured Goliath in in Hudson's wings, you know. And it's just this very, I love that moment because it's like, that feels like a moment where we really see that gargoyles are, on the one hand, a different species, you know. That, that, that it's done so sort of automatically and naturally. And, of course, we can't do that. We don't have wings, right? Um, right. They're not just um, human beings but that they're with, who look different, that they're different species. But on the other hand, the idea that um, we're not all that different when push comes to shove, that if you're someone you care about, you want to wrap them in your arms, you want to wrap them in your wings, you want to cover them with a blanket you want to take care of them um, and really the only and, other time we've seen that in so far is goliath and demona right wrapping wings and around this is a, so this is a sort of fatherly paternal version it's, of it's that. an embrace uh, a different kind of embrace that, that you know is alien to us but natural to them right and so I just, I love that moment. I'd forgotten about that until I rewatched it last night. And uh, I don't know who boarded that specific moment. If it was in the script or not, I have no memory whatsoever. But I just uh, wanted to point it out because I thought that is, a, to me, just a beautiful little moment. Amidst all the chaos of the episode, Hudson stops and does that. Well, in a sense, he is their father. I mean, he's uh, not their biological father, but when we learn about gargoyle parentage, culture, the communal raising, the older generations, he is essentially both Goliath and Hudson's 
rookery father, which makes what Demona's doing even more chilling, because well, he, this is the closest thing to a father she still has. Yeah, he's, uh, that's exactly right, except for the part where you said Hudson. Hudson father. instead of Demona. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I misspoke. My apologies. <laughs> He's his own dad? What? Well, uh, Philip J. Fry was his own grandfather, and there's time travel on the show. Who knows? (laughs) I love that Futurama episode. (laughs) All right. um, Are there any projects or any things any of you would like to plug? If if people want to donate to the center, that's my big project. So uh, that they would just go to TEAFC dot org slash donate and they would donate that we need their donations to keep doing what we do thank you awesome thank you as we're recording this uh young justice season four is coming back in a couple of days um back half of the season and it'll still be going every thursday uh new episode drops every thursday with of course all the old episodes available for streaming uh all through May and a little bit into June. Um, so uh, I'm hoping everyone shows up and watches some Young Justice. Hashtag keep binging YJ. Hashtag keep binging Gargoyles. That's right. Keep cranking them, guys. All right. And what about you, Jen? Do you have anything you would like to plug? No, I just got back from a convention. Everything's good. If you want to check out my Redbubble or my Etsy, you can go to heyassbutt.com. And uh, check it out there. <laughs> hey, ass butt. <laughs> Still the greatest URL of all time. <laughs> well, with that all out of the way, Matt, I would like to thank you very much for coming on. Like My pleasure. I've never had the pleasure of meeting your father. I signed at least one Get Well card for him at the Gathering of the Gargoyles convention. Yeah, we did that. So that's the closest I've ever come to having any contact with him. But um, I'm a longtime fan of his work, his activism, an amazing actor, an amazing and extraordinary human being. And he is missed by all of us. Thank you. And, and, and by me. Uh, I appreciate your words very much. Thank you. We really appreciate you coming and talking with us. <laughs> thank you. My pleasure. And Greg, I'd like to thank you. As always, for everything, Jennifer, thank you for being the best co-host this podcast could ever hope for. And uh, <laughs> you're stuck with me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Matt, Matt, I'll, Matt, I'll see you at the next strange, eerie family reunion. Whatever. Yes. Coming up. And I would like to say to our listeners, thank you for listening. Join us next time when we get to her brother's keeper. We discuss Elisa's family merchandising, and a whole lot more. See you then. I don't know who's the bigger fool, him for going, you for following, or me for not leaving you both.